Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Jack English and this is City Hall Stories. These are conversations with local government leaders who are imagining, designing and creating our future societies. Aspirational governance is the most effective way to build a healthier future. And this podcast is built to be a source of inspiration for anyone who looks out their window and says, let's do better. I hope the incredible humans you'll hear from deliver that inspiration. Karina Ricks sits in the city of Pittsburgh's Mayor's Cabinet as the inaugural director of the Department of Mobility and Infrastructure. Previously the director of transportation planning for the District of Columbia, Karina now oversees the design and implementation of Pittsburgh's, quote, complete network, resiliency, transportation, sustainability, autonomous vehicles, and more. Today, we dive into all of these topics to understand how the modern city is being planned and built. Note, you may hear birdsong and the occasional car drive past. We've left this in to help you imagine a summer walk through Pittsburgh as the city wakes up. Or something like that. Please enjoy. Karina, great to have you. Now, the bulk of our chat will center in on your current work, but being from New Zealand, I do have to ask, you spent time early in your career working on economic development, specifically for women in the South Pacific. What lessons did you take away from that work? Wow, yeah, that was a a while ago. So uh, happy to talk about it as I was in the um, kingdom of Tonga. And, you know, one of the things that I really focused on there and understood was was logistics. So Tonga is a very small nation in the middle of a very large ocean, is predominantly an import nation more so than an export nation. And so economic development, when it requires kind of the macroeconomic influences, means that we needed to really think about how are we going to make connections to the outside world? How are we going to connect um, to other places? And how can we leverage essentially inefficiencies that exist right now being boats that are empty, leaving the kingdom to head to other places to take advantage of that excess capacity to transport the goods that the women were creating um, so that they didn't need to bear the cost of that transportation, that they didn't need to kind of take that off the top of any revenue that they might gain. So really just looking at the system, looking at surpluses and, and unused capacity that existed there so that we could leverage that to help benefit these women. But it definitely was a an eye-opening experience about just the the, the interconnected web of places and the codependencies that we really need to recognize that they could not generate revenue for themselves without those connections. And so we had to do that very cost effectively. But anyway, it was a lovely place. I also learned all kinds of things about kava and and other things that we'll talk about another time. Seafood, I'm sure as well. In the the mid-2000s, you stated that many departments of transportation were looking at their roles through primarily a, a maintenance and safety lens, but not really seeing that potential larger community vision. A quote from you was, transportation is one of the most powerful economic development and social justice tools that we have at our disposal as planners. Can you elaborate on that idea quite broadly? Yeah, I mean, in most cities, the public rights of way, the streets and sidewalks and and other assets that are under the control of the departments of transportation make up one-fifth to one-quarter, sometimes more, of the land area of that city. That is 
the largest repository of property under single ownership that there generally is anywhere in any city, and it's all under public control. So if we're not really thinking about those public rights of way as being placemaking opportunities, as being places of commerce, as being arterials for commerce, as being embodiments of the care and respect that we convey to communities and to neighborhoods, then we're really not really leveraging the whole possibility there. So really thinking about the changes that we make, the prioritization that we make in the rights of way, whose reality matters? Is it the pedestrians or is it the the travel of private vehicles in streets? And so really kind of thinking about it through that lens and understanding that those decisions matter. Year after year after year, up until more recent decades, it was either expand the amount of that space that is being turned over to private transportation or after we had already done that damage. I will say in general, it was doing damage. After that era of the 40s, 50s, 60s, then we just fell into an era of replace and kind. What decisions that had been made by a previous generation, we somewhat blindly just continued to resurface and repaint in the exact same way that they had been. So you know, now I think that many transportation agencies around the world are not necessarily just blindly replacing in kind, but they're really thinking about how can I take this investment? Usually we touch our streets once a decade at most, oftentimes, you know, once every 50 or 80 years. We really need to think deliberately about what we're using those investments for, what we need to do not only for this generation, but for the generations that are following behind in terms of social justice, in terms of environmental sustainability, in terms of quality of place, stormwater, uh, a whole host of, of different impacts that are public rights away. Again, this enormously large land holding that is put into our stewardship. And we need to think consciously about those investments and decisions that we're making. And when you are making some of those decisions, I think you did touch on a few of them, but curious decisions around how we use our public right-of-ways for the the greatest social benefit and good. Are there for you, Karina, a set of, I guess you'd call them guiding principles or values that determine or at least direct a lot of your work? Or is it much more pragmatic and day-to-day and how we must respond to kind of what's coming across your desk? So I would love to get away from the the day-to-day kind of retail issues that demand our attention and demand problem solving in the near term. So far, you know, with only limited success, have we been able to kind of get away from that. But we do try to keep our eyes a larger set of principles. And and in the city of Pittsburgh, we've adopted a set of five goals that we really try and use to ground the direction that we go in and and the way that we design our projects and the prioritization of the projects that we do. The first one has to be grounded in safety. That's the fundamental role of any transportation agency. And I'm sorry to say, too often, that's just given lip service. We say that we want to make sure that no one dies or is seriously injured on our streets, but the decisions that we make doesn't actually always reflect that as being the highest priority and highest responsibility of us as as departments. So we say no one should die or seriously uh, be seriously injured, and yet we still design streets where one can travel at excessive speeds that results in significant traffic violence on our roadways. We still prioritize private automobiles over you know, personal human bodies on our streets. But in any event, we're guided by that goal and really try to hold ourselves accountable as difficult as those decisions can be to really follow through on 
preserving human life as our number one goal. We're guided by, uh, we have as a goal that every household in our city should be able to get to fresh fruits and vegetables within 20 minutes travel of home. And we cannot assume that they have a private automobile to do that. So we need to make sure that our system is efficient so that they can get to the store, buy their ice cream, get home before the ice cream melts and be able to have that as just a, a general human right. We have as a goal that very short distance trips, so trips that are less than a mile or about two kilometers, are most enjoyable to make by walking, rolling, or biking. Because a mile is not that far to travel. And, and, you know, that's when we can interact with fellow humanity. That's when we can take a little bit of a breather for ourselves and reconnect with the world around us. But we're not going to do that if our roads are terrifying to travel on, if we're not giving people safe places to travel, safe crossings to do that. So we have that as a goal. And then we have to keep an understanding of cost in mind. So transportation is a dear, dear cost in many households. Oftentimes for the lowest income people, transportation costs can actually be higher than housing costs for them. They're paying more just for essential travel than they are to to shelter their family. So, you know, understanding that those two major costs together, um, we don't want any of our households to have to spend more than 45% of their income for those two essential needs so that they have the balance of their income, 55% to have on clothing and food and higher education and you know uh, other kinds of things that they also deserve and then and then recognizing that our streets are an embodiment of our social values and really looking at them from that vein in Pittsburgh one of our favorite sons is Mr. Rogers the the children's television star and Mr. Rogers really was an embodiment of love and neighborliness and kindness and tolerance and, and inclusivity Pittsburgh we like to assign ourselves as having those same values, that that is the characteristic of a Pittsburgher, is someone who is just really a loving human being. But when you look at our streets, love might not be the first word that pops into your mind of what you're experiencing on that street. So, you know, again, how do we really kind of ground ourselves in that? How do the streets tell the story of our community and convey the idea of this city and this place to people who visit it? We also know, you know, 2020 was quite a year of awakening. And so, you know, we've, we've added to those driving fundamental goals in our department um, what we would call some imperatives things that are non-negotiable that we need to accomplish. One is climate sustainability. 2020, we saw the Western United States literally on fire. We saw the Southern United States flooded. Things that we never thought we would happen before. Here in Pittsburgh, we've experienced landslides at a rate that we've never seen before. So it is an imperative. It is no longer negotiable. It is an urgent, timely need for us to really understand the climate implications of what we're doing in our transportation system and racial justice and economic justice. Obviously in the United States, but it spread across the world, was an understanding of how decisions made, systemic historic decisions made in almost every sector of our society, including the transportation sector, embedded lasting inequities to people of color in our community. And that we need to not only recognize the impact that those decisions have had, but we need to take proactive action to actually start to reverse that. If we are really going to achieve this word that we throw around of equity, we need to be proactive and really think about what are those decisions and what can we do to start to 
reverse that embedded kind of consequence that we have in our system. So we have those, again, we have those five goals, but now these two imperatives that we add on top of that, that, that we really need to look at each and every transportation investment that we make, whether it is just a simple street resurfacing project, or if it is a new bridge connection or a new kind of mobility service that we're really bringing into our city that we need to ground it back and ask ourselves these really hard questions of does this improve access to fresh fruits and vegetables? Does this address racial inequities? Is this going to move us in the right direction in terms of of climate uh, sustainability? This is a bit of a more practical question. It does kind of touch on the climate aspect, but compared to a lot of cities in the United States, and including Washington, D.C., where you, you previously worked, Pittsburgh has a, a real winter. How does freezing conditions, when you're thinking about making streets an enjoyable place to walk or improving road safety, what does that mean for the decisions that you're having to make, having to take into account ice, snow, and, and all of the fun stuff that comes with winter? I mean, there's an assumption that ice and snow aren't fun. Well, but they, they, in all honesty, they can be. And we've seen great winter cities that know how to do this well and really embrace. There is this this mythology around, you know, sustainable transportation choices like bicycles or, you know, other personal mobility devices that these can only be used in the warmer months. Granted, it's more pleasant to use those in the warmer months, but properly attired with proper facilities that are properly maintained, cleared of ice and snow without a lot of other debris and slush and other things coming at them. These kinds of other uh, transportation choices can be used year round and winter cities all over the world show us that that's possible. Transit, let's show our transit riders a little bit more dignity and, and attention and giving them true shelter and thinking about passenger amenities and, and comforts for them during uh, all years. I mean, it is it does take really a, a different approach to that, but it is not, you know, we don't subscribe to the old tropes that, you know, you can only bicycle in summer, you know, that it's only a, a, a seven month a year option. That's not, that's not true. It's what we do to really invest in that being something that is comfortable to do all the months of the year. We know from other cities that this is possible. Yes, Pittsburgh does get winter. That really hard snow, hard cold is truly not that many days out of the year. The rest of the time, it is possible to continue to use these modes of of travel. Having spent a couple of pretty rough winters in Boston and biking to work five days a week, only having one real accident, I can confirm it is possible, although not always super enjoyable. Going back to that equity idea that you're, you're talking about, over the past decade or so in major metropolitan cities, we're seeing, while we can beautify previously distressed areas, it also has the unintended consequence of pushing out existing residents with new money flowing in. Now, as you look toward making some of those areas more accessible and more enjoyable to be in, what are some of those key lessons we can take from the past 10 years to ensure that moving forward, existing residents aren't having to up and move sticks every time their neighborhood gets improved transportation capabilities brought to it? Yeah, I mean, this is the most difficult question right, to try and answer. So we know today in the U.S. that some of our most generally, our most affordable neighborhoods are also the least connected neighborhoods. And we know that connectivity and access is what allows low-income households to move up the economic ladder. So they need 
the transportation connectivity and mobility access. But when that is provided, it does sort of open up the floodgates for people who have, you know, an array of economic options available to them. So part of this is really working hand in glove with partner agencies. This is trying to really see beyond single sector solutions We need to work in advance with land banks and affordable housing agencies and other entities to really stabilize those neighborhoods before the mobility investments come in or, you know, carefully kind of guard the mobility investments so that, you know, the the affordable benefits are given to those who need it most and, you know, maybe slow that gentrification down a little bit until again, until we can see those households, you know, rise up so that there's something close to equal footing with what the new arrivals may be. But it is, it takes a lot of foresight and it's, we just really need to be conscious of that. I think that's a a big lesson learned from Washington, D.C., among, among other places, and where we were really focused on bringing um, mobility to some of the eastern neighborhoods of the city to really improve their access, really improve their connectivity. Um, and we were almost singularly focused on that good, because it is a good to do that, but we didn't really nail down the affordability ahead of time. And it's a long game, and, and but we need to do that. We really need to work Uh, on nailing down that affordability and stability of those neighborhoods before we open it up to fresh pressures. And again, it's one of those imperatives that there's no time to lose. So we have to somehow do that quickly so that we don't continue to hold these communities back while other better connected neighborhoods are allowed to prosper more. You oversee mobility specifically for the city of Pittsburgh, but surrounding the city, there are a ton of boroughs and townships that have their own mobility and transportation goals and challenges. Do the goals of the city of Pittsburgh ever come into conflict with the goals of those adjacent communities? And if so, how do you work through that? Yes and no. I think for a lot of those residents of the boroughs, they want the same thing that that people in the city of Pittsburgh want. They want safe streets. They want walkable communities. They want clean air and clean water. Um, they want open space. They want quiet on their streets. They want, you know, safe places to travel and freedom from traffic violence. They also, uh, many of them, also want a quick and rapid and seamless commute from those surrounding areas to the central employment area, which is in the city of Pittsburgh. And so they want free-flowing arterial streets. They want rapid progression to their parking garages. They want parking garages and places to leave um, their vehicles. So the things that we agree on is that in those places that we live, we want these livable community kinds of developments. Where we come in conflict is how do we speedily transport people from outer areas of the region into the central employment area. That's really where the conflict starts to arise and that we need to work that out. You know, the the answer, if I can answer that myself, is better mass transit, more efficient to more places, speedily uh, delivering them in a higher occupancy vehicle that is operating at at a wide span um, of the day. The answer is mass transit and that we just really need to make more investments in mass transit so that we can uh, achieve that goal that people have of a speedy speedy transport from the outer boroughs into the central city. How did 
COVID-19 affect mobility and traffic patterns in Pittsburgh, both from a private automobile perspective as well as public rights of way? I think in the same way that it affected a lot of places. So when the pandemic first hit, of course, we had a near suspension of traffic. Everything stopped. Um, and our streets were very, very quiet places to be. We converted our streets the same way that a lot of other places did, that we uh, turned them over to more walking and biking, more more recreational use on the streets. We went, you know, slowly, slowly, uh, some commercial activity was allowed to resume Um, We turned our streets over to more outdoor dining to support those commercial uses on the street. We did see a a huge uptick in the number of people biking because they're their world got very small suddenly. And so when we talk about the 15-minute neighborhood or the 20-minute neighborhood, um, many people lived that, that their world shrank to the places that they could get to within you know, 15 or, or 20 minutes of walking or bicycling. And so we saw, you know, great, great uptick in that as the economy opened up some more. And as we've seen people return to work and return to activity, unfortunately, what we've seen is that motor vehicle traffic has resumed almost to uh, the same level as it was pre-COVID. However, public transit ridership continues to lag. As we go to full resumption of the economy, that has to return. We cannot accommodate the proportion of, of private automobile travel that we see right now under a, a fully resumed economy. We need to have people go again to those better space efficiency modes of travel, walking, bicycling, and transit. So, you know, we've, we've seen that happen. We do think that telework will continue to be a very viable means. So, you know, perhaps we won't see the same level of net in commuting that we used to see. But again, if the commuting that we're seeing is all automobile based, that's not necessarily a, a benefit to us. I mean, I think those those are the, the big things that we've seen from the, from the COVID pandemic. I think obviously more goods delivery has also really risen. And so needing to solve for, in particular, home delivery, So that too has generated more vehicle-based trips because instead of having, you know, multiple people go to a central shop or a central place, we're seeing multiple individual trips to individual, you know, so so many to many instead of many to few kinds of trips. And that, that also is something that we're going to have to figure out if this is if this behavior is going to continue in the long term. This is a bit of a, a basic question, but something I'm interested in. Where does your department get the money to do the things that you need to do? Is it solely coming from the general fund of the city of Pittsburgh? Are you getting grants from the federal government? And beyond that, is the current mode of funding for departments like yours sustainable to achieve what we need to achieve? So transportation and infrastructure funding is a complicated mix of a whole lot of sources. Quite a significant amount of it comes from the general fund of the city. And we are a city that is a small subset of a larger county. We're not a consolidated city county. Um, as some places are. So that means that our pie is a little bit smaller than in other places. We do receive some state and federal funds, but those are resources that we need to compete for in the larger region. And in general, on a per capita basis, we receive significantly less than some of the the, uh, surrounding areas of our region. 
We do look to public-private partnerships quite a lot so that we can do innovative funding to accomplish some of our goals. We do guide private sector investment from development so that they too can contribute to the betterment of our system. But yeah, so it, it's a it's a sort of an all of the above potpourri of funding sources that we utilize. Is it sustainable? It's absolutely not. We lose ground every year. So we are a legacy city. Our infrastructure, the height of infrastructure building in the city of Pittsburgh, you know, was 80 to 100 years ago. Most of the beautiful, beautiful bridges that we have, the phenomenal trails and roadways and other kind of iconic infrastructure is all coming due right about now. And so, you know, really making significant infrastructure investments is something that we have um, a really urgent need for. Otherwise, we're going to have to start making tough decisions about which infrastructure do we keep um, and which infrastructure do we strategically eliminate and what are the consequences of that for economic connectivity, for, for social cohesion, for a whole host of other factors. Which I imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, leads on to the attractiveness of some of these newer technologies that cities are, are now seeing, you know, e-scooters, blue bikes, city bikes, whatever you want to call them, perhaps even autonomous vehicles, which may ease the transportation load on the city itself. However, I'm sure that they introduce a whole range of factors that you have to think about. What are some of those? Yeah, I mean, a robot car or an electric car or a, you know, a goods delivery car or a drone. I mean, they're all, they're all cars. And so we still need to, that doesn't necessarily help our congestion issues. It doesn't necessarily help our infrastructure maintenance issues. So we still need to really strongly pursue these technologists and others to look to greater efficiency in what they're doing, meaning moving more people per vehicle. But we do think that there is there is good opportunity. Pittsburgh is sort of the birthplace of, of autonomous vehicle technology. We continue to collaborate with that sector to try and make it safer and more viable. We do think that we have a unique position among cities to push them toward greater social good. We do try and work with the technologists who are developing self-driving technology and, and autonomous vehicle technology to make sure that they're aware of the social implications of what they're doing. I think a lot of times the engineers in those areas are just looking to do really cool stuff, and it, and it is really, really cool, um, but it's really cool with some consequences if you don't pay attention to that. So, you know, because we have a lot of the research and development happening here, um, because we have a lot of the original tech development happening here, and because, frankly, you know, we're just a, we're, we're kind of a small town and it's easy to talk to one another, um, that we're able to have those really candid conversations with the technology developers here and talk about how do we move toward a better social good outcome of the deployment of this technology? How do we work together to solve some of the real issues that exist around, again, inequities and environmental consequences and uh, maintenance of, of our infrastructure? But it's a great discussion to have, and, and we really appreciate the partnerships that we have here in the city um, and do, again, 
you know, think that this kind of technology is something that can help us have much more frequent transit service. It can help us have much safer streets and fewer road deaths. It's something that can help, you know, increase um, accessibility and transportation for people who otherwise have certain mobility limitations. But it needs to be done in a really conscious, eyes wide open kind of way. We have a traditional closing question. What's one accepted truth of local government that you think is incorrect? Certainly the government staff punch in and punch out uh, limited hours or that they don't, you know, don't work that hard, that we take government positions because they're easy. I would assure everyone that uh, working in the public sector is not a nine to five job. It is not a 40 hour a week job and it is not an easy job. It's something that people do definitely for love, not money, because we we value the social good that can come out of it because we believe in the work that we're doing. But yeah, I mean, it, it's extremely rewarding. People take a lot of pride in what they do and just really, really grateful for the staff that I have here and for the, for the colleagues around the world that I have also working in this area. Karina, thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed learning all things transportation, equity and infrastructure. Please keep up the great work in Pittsburgh. Thank you so much. It's been really great. It's me again. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.